Nobody lives forever. But this sermon is not about death. And while there are exceptions to this rule, let me, other, let me offer another reminder that nobody stays in the same place forever either. But this sermon is not about goodbyes. Instead, this sermon is about perspective. It's about remembering that the work of God's kingdom is a lot bigger than any one of us. It's a lot larger than any one person or any one individual. And even though you might seem awfully small and inconsequential and insignificant in the light of all that the world is facing today, this is also a reminder that you play a critical role in the work of God's kingdom. This sermon is about perspective. It's about remembering that God's kingdom is bigger than any one of us, and so is your role in it. From the very beginning, the narrator tells us that Elijah is about to enter the home stretch of his life. He has many more days behind him than he has ahead of him. He would soon be departing from this earth, and he would be leaving behind quite a legacy. By any standard, even by the stories that we have heard these last few weeks, there can be no argument made against the reality that Elijah is the greatest, most successful, most powerful, and most important prophet in the entire Old Testament. He stands alone in the minds and in the hearts of the Jewish people. And we would be right to wonder how in the world God was going to continue this work without Elijah. You heard the doubt in the story. On two separate occasions, as Elijah and Elisha were walking down together, groups of people, 50 fellow prophets, would shout out at them the question that was on their minds, pressing hard on Elisha, Asking him, don't you know that your master is leaving soon? What they were really asking was, what in the world is going to happen in the ministry after Elijah is gone? Elisha, how in the world are you going to fill his shoes? And what these people fail to recognize, and what this story is here to teach us, is a little perspective that the work of God's kingdom is a lot bigger than any one of us. And our role is also a huge one. The work of God continues without fail. Because the reality that was proven thousands of years ago between Elijah and Elisha still rings true for those of us who are part of the Christian community today. And it is this fundamental truth. We all need each other. God's kingdom, the work of God's church is built not on bricks and mortar, but on relationships, on connections, on the ways that we interact with each other in an interconnected, interdependent web of relationships, the way Jesus explained it as his being the branch and all of us being connected together. 
we all need each other. So that when one of us is weak, we can always know that we can turn to someone else in the Christian connection for strength. So that when one of us is grieving, we can turn to a fellow brother and sister in Christ for a listening ear or a shoulder to lean on. So that when one of us is in need, we can know that when all else fails in the world around us, we can turn to the kingdom of God to help us through our time of desperation. And friends, isn't that what we have seen in these days in the wake of the events of Orlando? Haven't we seen God's kingdom at work through acts of solidarity and kindness and generosity? In the wake of acts that have been utterly horrifying and despicable, when we ask questions about the nature of this violence, we have seen perspective. That God's kingdom is at work and we all play a vital role in it. We saw it in the long lines at the Bloodmobile on this church campus after worship last Sunday as people stayed for long hours out in the heat to give the gift of life. We saw it evidenced in stirring photographs of people, even from this congregation, like Vicki Walker and others of you who stood in prayer vigils in this community and all around the country, standing in prayer and in solidarity with the victims of this crime. We saw it in acts of witness and love for the LGBTQ community who for many long years have suffered oppression and discrimination and are now well deserving of the solidarity, generosity, and compassion that others are giving them. We saw it this past week in a renewed call for legislation that will address violence that's related to guns. We saw it in the prophetic witness of religious leaders and faith communities of all stripes and faiths and denominations who are calling their congregations to a time of confession and witness so that our own public profession and expression of religious conviction may not become the very evil that we are striving to overcome. We have seen it over and over again, this fundamental truth that we are all connected to each other and we all depend on one another. That's the message of 2 Kings chapter 2, verse, verses 1 through 15 today. This is not a story about Elijah departing from earth. This is not about Elisha being promoted to head honcho. This is a reminder that all of us are an integral part of an intricate connection of people who depend on each other for spiritual growth and Christian action. At one point in the journey, Elijah turned to Elisha and asked him a very interesting question. He said, Elisha, what do you want me to do for you? What is one thing that I can do for you before I leave? Elisha's response was very interesting. It was quite poignant, but it was also very cryptic. He said, Elijah, give me a double portion of your spirit. What Elisha was asking for 
harkens back to ancient Hebrew tradition involving the passing of an inheritance from one generation to another. Most often this was played out, of course, in family dynamics as a parent passed an inheritance on to one's children. When a child came to a a parent to ask for an advance of an inheritance, the parent would usually give one-third of the inheritance in advance to the child. But, of course, Elijah and Elisha were not blood relatives. They were not family members to each other. They were instead sacred family members from one generation to the next. What Elisha was asking for here was not an inheritance of wealth, It was not land. It was not prestige. What he was asking Elijah for was something deeper, much more profound. He was asking for Elijah's sacred inheritance, his spiritual inheritance, so that he could continue Elijah's spiritual authority, his kingdom work, his divine calling from God. In other words, Elisha was asking for Elijah's blessing to continue the work that God was doing. So, here is the invitation for you and me today. This is our point of entry into this story. And it's to simply answer this question. What is it that your ancestors have left for you. I'm not talking about an inheritance of wealth, of course, or an inheritance of your profession or your occupation. I'm talking about their spiritual inheritance. I'm talking about that which your spiritual ancestors have left for you. Here is the plainest, most blunt way I can ask the question. Who have been your Elijah's? Who has been your spiritual ancestor who has gifted you the inner workings of the faith and modeled for you a life of righteousness and holiness and love? And on this Father's Day, the place for me to begin to answer that question, of course, begins with my own dad. My dad was born in Cavite City, just outside metropolitan Manila in the Philippines. In a moment, you'll see a picture of him on the screen. He was, uh, there he is. He's the one on the left. (laughs) He was born in the 1940s. He graduated from a college in the Philippines and started a career in his 20s as a teacher in high school. As a young man, he came to the realization that one day he wanted to get married and he wanted to start a family. And it was then that he reached a crossroads in his life. He had to make a decision. What he realized was that if he was going to start a family and if he was going to give his future children the best chance at the best possible life, that could mean only one thing, America. He would have to leave the Philippines and embark with great risk on a whole new life on the other side of the globe 
And that's what he chose to do. Cobbling together the last bits of money that he had, he afforded a boat trip from the Philippines over to California where he had heard whispers of a job opportunity for people with a chemical engineering degree like he had. He got to San Diego and found that there was no work for him. So he cobbled together the last of his money for a Greyhound bus ticket in order to follow a job lead in, of all places, Miami, Florida. A Greyhound bus took him from San Diego to Florida, where he had very little money left in his pocket except to feed himself off the vending machines that were in those bus stations, which is why to this day he's still addicted to Baby Ruth candy bars. (laughs) When he got down to southern Florida, he realized that the job that he thought would be there for him was not there. Essentially penniless, he got one final word of a small startup chemical engineering company in a sleepy suburban town called St. Petersburg, Florida. In a chemical plant just next to Tyrone Square Mall. He borrowed some money from some friends, took a trip up to St. Pete, was interviewed by that company. And in one final question from those employers to him, they said to him, Mike, Mr. DeVega, do you have any questions for us? To which my dad said, well, yeah. If you decide you want to hire me, can I start tomorrow? They hired him. He established a new life, found an apartment on Central Avenue, started going to United Methodist Church, established a whole new life for himself here in the United States always remembering the entire time a promise that he had made to a special woman that he had met before coming to America, a woman named Teresita, a woman that he met in, of all places, a funeral. It was then that they decided together that if they were going to start a family, He was going to come to the United States first, establish his life, become a citizen, and he would come back someday for her. Phone calls were expensive back then. Mail was unreliable, which meant that for almost four years, Mike and Tessie DeVega could not speak to one another. Instead, they waited for each other. They were true and faithful to each other. Because on that one day, Mr. DeVega went back over to the Philippines, true to his word, and went over to get the woman who would become my mom. Brought her over in 1972. They were married in January of that year in a Presbyterian church in St. Petersburg, Florida. And the following year, January 1973, they gave birth to an utterly adorable and charming little boy. What's so funny? When I think about the Elijahs in my life, especially in Father's Day, I begin with my dad, the one who taught me everything I ever needed to know about loyalty and hard work and decency and putting your family first in everything you do. 
if I were to inherit a double portion of his spirit, I would try to live out those values each and every day. And that's what I try to do. And even though this is the third time this morning that I've preached this sermon, this is the first time that I'm able to preach this sermon with my dad in attendance to hear that story. You can say hi to him after the service if he's not busy eating a baby Ruth. That would be fine. <laughs> I also think about my mother's father, my grandfather. I called him Lolo, Lolo Naring. He spent most of his life in the Philippines except for a few weeks out of a few years where he would come and spend time with us in St. Petersburg. He was an elderly man when I first got to know him. He died when I was a teenager, but I spent most of my elementary years getting to know him. He didn't speak much English. Frankly, he didn't speak any English at all. But there was something about him that made it easy for us to cross both the generation gap and the language barrier. We would spend lots of our days fishing together. We would spend time in front of the television watching the one television show that could bridge generations and transcend human language, The Three Stooges. <laughs> I've never known a more hardworking and gentle and contented man in my entire life. And if I were to receive a double portion of his spirit, I would live my days with the same kind of determination and gentleness and reverence for all of life as my Lola Naring. When I think about my Elijahs, I also think of a woman named Ruth Farrell, an elderly woman that I got to know when I was seven years old, the woman who first taught me in a way that I could understand, me, understand it about the story of God's love and the story about Jesus Christ. She told me about Jesus in such a warm and inviting and motherly way that I found her story and God's grace utterly irresistible. She led me to Christ. And if I were to inherit a double portion of her spirit, I would follow in her path to proclaim the same message of God's love in a way that is non-judgmental, to tell others about God's love for us in a way that is loving and warm and inviting and challenging. And that's what I try to do as I live out my days. Oh, I've got other Elijahs. I could tell you about my youth director who first identified a call to ministry in me by asking me to preach for the very first time as a teenager. She somehow knew that one day Gray was going to be in the pulpit, even though I didn't believe it, even though I would spend years running away from it. But she nurtured that call. I could tell you about my pastor of my hometown church who guided me in my call to ministry. And to this day, serves as one of my most important spiritual mentors, a person who talks to me regularly, who comforts me and encourages me and teaches me the nuts and bolts of pastoral ministry. 
I could tell you about all of these Elijahs, all of them that teach me how to be a better Christian. My aunt in St. Petersburg, who prays for me each and every morning, who in many ways continues to be a spiritual rock for my ministry and my Christian life. These are all Elijahs. And the point is this. All of us, even you, have at least one Elijah that you can be grateful for. An Elijah in your past from whom you have received an example and a capacity to continue the spiritual work of God's kingdom. So who is that Elijah for you? Who are those Elijahs in your life? And if you are privileged enough to still have that Elijah around, then by no means, by all means, take some time to thank that person personally for what they have done for you. And even if they're not around, give thanks to God. And know that they continue to live on just as Elijah lived on through the work of Elisha. Those people can live on through you. But there's one more part to the story. As Elijah drifted off into the clouds and as a fiery chariot carried him up in that whirlwind, Elisha kept his eye on him. A symbolic gesture, a way of acknowledging that he was always going to keep the vision of Elijah's work in ministry at the forefront of his mind. And it was in that moment when Elisha kept his eye on Elijah that Elijah indeed imparted that double portion of his spirit to him. His first act was to take Elijah's mantle the outer cloak. And then Elisha took that cloak and struck the waters of the Jordan just like Elijah did. And those waters of the Jordan River parted just like they did for Elijah. And it was a stirring witness to everyone who saw it that now it was Elisha's turn, that the full power of spiritual authority had been transferred from Elijah to Elisha, and it was in that moment that Elisha realized this. It was his turn to be Elijah. And it was his turn to be an Elijah for someone else. It was his turn to identify an Elisha that he could mentor along the way. Oh, today's story is not about death, and it is not about goodbyes. Today's story is about perspective. It's about seeing your life as the sum result of all of the spiritual influences that God has given to you in all of the Elijahs who have formed you and shaped you into who you are. But it is also a reminder that each and every one of us are responsible for identifying an Elisha that we can now influence and shape so that the kingdom of God can continue even after we are gone. You see, the kingdom is a lot bigger than you and me, but we play a pretty big role in it. 
Because just as Elijah's have given us the faith, we need to do the same for those who are within our sphere of influence. So here's the second and final question for us to answer today. Not only is who is your Elijah, but who is your Elisha? Who are the people that you are going to influence so that their work can reflect the love of God in them? So that your life and your example can be lived out in them long after you are gone? For some of you, the answer to that question may be quick and easy. It could be a child. It could be a family member that is entrusted to your care. That's an obvious one. But maybe there are some less than obvious ones for you. It could be that you have numerous Elishas that God entrusts to your care. Not just a family member, but a friend, a person who is struggling, a person who is newer or even weaker to the faith that may be calling upon you for the kind of example and model of faithfulness that you have learned from someone else. It could be that your Elisha right now is living in, of all places, downtown Tampa. And you might be called to be an Elijah among the 120 people starting a worship service on the Portico campus so that one day you can meet your Elisha living downtown and walk them through an extraordinary life of faith. I don't know who your Elisha is, but I know everybody's got one. And it is our call to be as faithful to those that we are mentoring as those who have mentored us. Here's the best and most imaginative way I know how to explain this to you as one final closing to this sermon. I'd like for you to imagine that every single day as you walk through life, going about the business of your day, I'd like for you to imagine that there are always two people who are walking alongside you whether you realize it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, they're always there. On one side is your Elijah, the person whose influence continues to endure in your life, to shape your words and your actions for the better, the one without whom you would be much weaker and much less successful as a person and as a Christian. Your Elijah is always with you. But you know what? So is your Elisha. Whether you realize it or not, there is always someone who is watching you, observing you, learning from you, soaking in your words and your behaviors, adapting your life into theirs to learn from both your successes and especially from your failures to learn the lessons of both your high points as well as your moments of weakness. We all have a sacred responsibility to mentor the Elishas within our influence. We all have an Elijah. We all have an Elisha. And friends, how is that for a little perspective? Let us pray together. Gracious and eternal God, we thank you for the influences of those who have gone before us to pave the way of faith 
so that we can continue in your ways. We thank you for every Elijah that we have named in our hearts. Call to mind others that we can thank you for and even perhaps thank personally. But we know that your work continues through our influence on others. Call to mind and bring to our path everyone who needs to learn about you through our example and our witness. Though it may seem challenging for us to even consider the holy task of mentoring someone in the faith, though we might feel much too inadequate, way too weak, and much too fraught with mistakes to even do this job well, we remember that your work is bigger than us. Your faithfulness is greater than our weakness. And we all have a role to play in it. Thank you, O God, for our fathers, for our ancestors who have paved the way of faith. Help us to share the faith with those who would follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.